And our reading for this evening is from Psalm 86, and it will be up on the screen. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer. Lord, listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all of my heart. I will glorify you for your name forever. For great is your love towards me, and you have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy upon me. Show your strength on behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Reese, for that amazing reading. Hi, everyone. Hello, hello. As Emily said, if you haven't met yet, my name is Dan Kim. I'm a vicar in training here in the city, and I attend this church at St. Audrey. So if you have a Bible with you, on your phone, on a codex, in a book, please open it to Psalm 86. I'll be in this passage quite a bit. Now, this is one of my favorite psalms of all time. I pray this very regularly. And the particular part of it that I always go back to So the very center of this psalm, in verse 11, we have this incredible prayer that David prays. He says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify you, your name forever. Give me an undivided heart. The good old King James has a more concise translation. Unite my heart, O Lord. This is the verse I want to zero in on, guys. Because the Bible is very concerned about the state of our hearts. Our heart. And the heart is a very complex, deep structure in the Bible. What is the heart in the biblical imagination? And like in modern English, one thing the heart does is is a source of, of our loves. So in Romans 5, it talks about how God pours out his love into our hearts. But also, the heart encompasses far more than that. In the Bible, the heart is also the metaphorical seat of our will, our commitments, our convictions, our resolutions. So we might say we made up our mind. The Bible would say he resolved in his heart. And so unlike us moderns, the biblical authors didn't have this strict dichotomy between our rational minds and our emotional landscape. We had this far more integrated, holistic vision of our psychological makeup. We are an amalgamation of our loves, our thoughts, our feelings, our drives, our wills, and they all integrate into the heart. And so the heart is the central operating system 
the base um, for how a human being lives out their life. And so that's why Jesus teaches in Matthew 15 that it is what comes out of the heart that determines the righteousness of a person. And so God is very concerned about the state of our hearts. We're called to have soft hearts. We're called to have pure hearts. But in Psalm 86, we are dealing with a divided heart. And a divided heart can be one of the most challenging and catastrophic things we can deal with in life as we go along. And it can be divided in many different ways. We can be ethically divided. How, what's the right thing to do? And we struggle with that question. We can be divided, and that's complicated. We can be romantically divided, and that's very complicated. As some of you might know, having feelings for multiple people, and it's like very complicated. But in this Psalm 86, I think David is getting at a spiritually divided heart. And our hearts are very prone to being divided. Very, very prone. Almost at every single stage of the journey of faith, whether you're still exploring faith or whether you've been a Christian for decades, our hearts can be divided very easily. And often it's divided against our own will. You know, most of us want to serve Jesus. and want to live out our commitments wholeheartedly with undivided hearts. But often our immediate context gets in the way. And one of the key factors that leads to a divided heart is discouragement, a sense of being on the losing side, a lack of morale in your own faith. And this discouragement can then lead to doubt. We start to ask some of the scary questions. Is it actually all worth it? What if this doesn't work out? What if God won't pull through for me? And this doubt can then lead to a divided Heart. I need something else to lean on. I need to side hustle my spiritual life. I need to diversify my investments like a good investment banker. We start to look to other things for spiritual nourishment and fulfillment. And personally, I regularly struggle with a divided heart. I get so discouraged. You know, I have had the privilege of seeing many people come to faith. But I've seen far more people, loved ones, friends, people I used to dream and pray with, walk away from Jesus. And growing up in this nation, the cultural atmosphere can be so corrosive to faith, can't it? You know, despite encouraging signs of church growth in urban centers like London and Oxford here and there, the church feels like it is in free-fall decline in this nation. People seem more satisfied with astrology, tarot cards, and their gym than with the living God himself. And so that discouragement gives birth to doubt. Dan, you're just a bit too intense, man. Have other side projects to bank on that you can at least look back and say, oh yeah, you achieved that at least. Don't rely on God. And so I divide. Give God my heart, but hold some back. Divide it up. And clearly, this is not a new modern phenomenon. David and many other biblical characters struggled with a divided heart. And Psalm 86 has this to say. David's immediate context in this psalm is one where he is under intense pressure and a huge amount of discouragement. In verse 14, we read, uh, arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for me. That's pretty discouraging, I think. And so he desperately appeals to God. Guard me, save me, listen to my cry, show me your strength. So even though he has faith in God, he doubts, he, he appeals to God. He doesn't say, you will save me, he says, save me, God. He's divided. 
And in verse 17, we have this brutally honest prayer. Give me a sign of your goodness. Give me a sign. Who's prayed that prayer? Give me a sign. And don't mean a face of Christ on a toast, a real sign. Yet David still can sincerely pray to God, give me an undivided heart. Unite my heart, O God. And so how do we wrestle well with a divided heart? Well, if discouragement leads to doubt, which leads to division, we can flip that script. We can say encouragement leads to faith, which leads to a united heart undivided heart. And ultimately, only God, by the Holy Spirit, can do the inner transformative work of uniting it. Um, But I want to pull out just two key themes of encouragement from our psalm that can help us reorient ourselves so that we can move towards that undivided, united heart. The first is this. Look among the gods. In verse 8, David declares, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. Now, the American president, Teddy Roosevelt, once said, Comparison is a thief of joy, and he's normally absolutely correct. If you compare yourself with other people's lives, you will live a terrible life. But sometimes comparison can be the wellspring of gratitude. Most of us in the room here where no matter our economic position in the UK, are still living in the top 3% of the world. Comparison can breed gratitude. And it's similar when it comes to our Christian faith. When it comes to Jesus, a little bit of comparison can be really, really helpful. Because there are other gods in the world out there. And they demand different things from you, and they promise different things to you. In the ancient world, you had many explicit gods around. You had the ancient Canaanite gods, you had the Babylonian gods, you had the Greek pantheon, and they demanded different things from their people. Daily sacrifices, exhausting incantations of magical rituals, blood sacrifices. One particular god in the region of ancient Canaan, of the uh, the Ammonites, a god called Molech, demanded constant sacrifice of children to satisfy him among the other gods. And we might think this is a pre-modern, superstitious view of the spiritual world, or these other strange fictional gods out there. But there are just as many gods today that we worship. We just use different words for them. A god is not simply kind of this person in the sky, being in the sky. A god is something that humans assign ultimate spiritual value to, and that we pursue with all our life. Everything costs everything in the end. Life costs us our life. And a God is whatever we pursue with our entire being. And arguably, the ancient world had a far more sophisticated understanding of the nature of reality. Because there is a spiritual dimension to all the great projects and pursuits of humanity today. The technological desire to upload our consciousness for immortality, the constant pursuit of youth and beauty, the $2.2 trillion of military spending that could eradicate human life on Earth 100 times over. It's naive to think this is simply sociology. That's, that's more testament to our own modern blind spots about the nature of the world. They are what the Bible calls powers and principalities, 
idols, or in modern language, systems, ideologies, other gods. And they demand their followers everything. They attract them and they demand from us our blood, our sweat, our tears, our money, our timesheets, and our time, and even our humanity. In Isaiah 46, the prophet Isaiah notices how people are walking around having built their own uh, idol statues of their gods. And he notices how they would put these gods on their back and they would walk around as he- with a heavy load of this bronze statue on their back as, a, as this weighty thing. Heavy burdens among the gods. So in the 21st century, we are living amongst many gods. But amongst them, there is none like the Lord. And that is what David is so sure of. There is none like the Lord our God. And David reminds us of one of the oldest descriptions of God in the Bible. In verse 15, he quotes from Exodus 34, when God reveals his full glory to Moses, and he says, but you, Lord, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This God is not capricious or arbitrary. He is not quick to anger, but he is patient. He is abounding not trickling in love, and his fidelity to you and to me is not fickle. He does not demand anything from you that will leave you worse off than had you never followed Jesus. Following any God costs a lot, including Jesus. But what matters is not the cost, what matters is what they promise and how they treat their followers. When we zoom out and look at the whole story of the Bible, we see the promises and, the, and how God treats his people most beautifully in the person of Jesus Christ, don't we? We sang about it in Jesus, how great thou art, his blood, his tears, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love mingled down. Other gods make their followers bear them on their shoulders. Jesus Christ bears us on his shoulders. Other gods break the hearts of their worshippers. Jesus Christ is broken for the hearts of his worshippers. Other gods will take and take and take until we sink into the grave, whereas Jesus Christ will give and give and give until we rise from the grave into eternal life. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the realm of the dead. That's a prophecy from David made true in Christ Jesus. In 1854, following his radical conversion to Christianity, Dostoevsky wrote that there is nothing more beautiful, more profound, more likable, more reasonable, more courageous and perfect than Jesus Christ. And he's absolutely right. So when your heart feels divided, look among the gods and you will find there is none like Jesus. Give me a united heart. Undivide my heart, O Lord, for among the gods there is none like you. The second theme of encouragement I want to pull out from this amazing psalm is just after verse 8, in verse 9, and it's this, look among the nations. In verse 9, David writes, 
All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Now, earlier this month, I had the unbelievable privilege of being in Indonesia at this global Christian conference, and it was so inspiring. There were 164 nations represented there, and that is remarkable. For context, the UN has 193 countries, so it's a huge collection of people from all around the world and every continent, and the worship was just completely sublime. We sang songs in over seven languages throughout the week, and it was completely wild. We had some Latin American Spanish power ballads and Afro-Caribbean reggae, songs in Arabic, Indonesian, Igbo, French, and all their styles, and it's, it was beautiful. It's always really funny when you have Northern Europeans in a room full of non-Northern Europeans. <laughs> the kind of awkward crossed arms looks out of place. It's, it's kind of weird. It's really funny. Um, and I used to work in advertising before training to be a vicar. And there was always such an emphasis in the entire creative industry to try and diversify our creative output. We want thousands of people and millions and millions of pounds go into creating globally expressive creative things that still feel cohesive. And yet, here is the church doing it. We've always done. All the nations you have made will gather and worship before you. And so, when I was discouraged and divided, which is how I felt when I went to this conference, testimonies from the global church just really spoke to me, really encouraged me. I met a 22-year-old who is the national leader of Kenya's Christian student movement. And I asked him how it's going, and he proceeded to tell me that his current movement has 65 thousand current members worshipping Jesus. That's current students, not alumni, current students. And his campus prayer meeting gets 3,000 people a week. And I also met people for whom following Jesus quite literally means the possibility of imprisonment, violent persecution, and even death. And yet they persevere. It's incredible. So how can I ask myself, is it all worth it? and they're people dying for what I believe. When we look at the state of Christianity in the West, we get a really warped sense of how things are actually going. We really do, it's a lie. Globally, Jesus is not irrelevant, the church is not in free fall decline, things are very much alive and well. And I was profoundly challenged by this. Maybe I think too much about what's going on in the Church of England and not enough of what's going on in the Church of Christ globally. Yeah, amen. <laughs> you know, currently, Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. 40 years ago, there were about 500 known Islam to Christian converts. Today, that number is estimated at around 800,000 to a million people. 40 years. You know, there are now more Christians in China than Communist Party members. 100 million Christians. And looking among the nations doesn't mean looking overseas. We have so many different communities in this nation right under our noses. Did you know that there is currently a radical Christian revival going on amongst the traveling gypsy community in this nation? In the last 25 years, there has been this extraordinary revival to the point that it's now estimated that about 40% of all traveling gypsies in this nation are born-again Pentecostal Christians. We pray for revival, and it's just been happening right under our notes. 
you go to rural Wales right now, there are, you will find bands of Korean missionaries kind of huddled, scattered across the valleys who have given up their entire lives to re-evangelize the lands that brought them the Christian faith. And many of them have come because God told them in a dream, independently. It's wild. Well, look to your own workplace. When I was um, commuting a lot and working in, in, in a creative agency, I, I thought there was no Christian in my office. I thought I was the only person that, that I, I couldn't pray with anybody. Then one morning, I had to get into work early and I got into the lift, get onto my floor, and two of the cleaners came into the lift with me. And I was kind of pressing my button, and then I heard one of the cleaners uh, start to hum a worship song. And I was like, hey, woo, hey. And I asked her, excuse me, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I'm a Christian. And it turns out they were both Christians. And we got to pray in the lift for that two minute up and down. They encouraged me, they blessed me, and I felt so encouraged and, and deeply moved by that. And afterwards, I had to repent to God. I really did. Because I thought I was some special ambassador to this hardened workplace as God's amazing person. But it turns out there have been people praying there for years and years before me. If you find yourself in a seemingly faithless workplace, you might find there is actually far more faith than you think there is. Just look in places outside your immediate context. Because the most extraordinary works of God are rarely found in the halls of power or the limelight or amongst the great and powerful or amongst the impressive. It is almost always found in the margins, in the forgotten places. That is almost always where Jesus is to be found. So David prays, all nations will come and worship the Lord and bring glory to your name. He prays, all nations will worship. We are in a better historical position in the 21st century. We can actually say, all nations do come and worship the Lord and glorify his name. That is a privilege that we have living this side of Christ. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, this could be a bit overwhelming for you, a bit sort of surprising as well. And what I want to say to you is that Christianity has never, ever, ever been a Western religion, ever. And sure, there is complicated things going on between Christianity and the West and skeletons there, whatever. But what I encourage you to do if you're exploring faith is to try and meet people of, uh, who, who are Christian from other nations. Because what you will find, what you'll find is that they have a unique experience of faith mediated through their own cultural lens, but you'll also find that it is the same person of Jesus Christ who has wooed their hearts and whom they have fallen in love with. And if you're here and you've been a Christian for decades or years and you feel your heart being divided because of doubt and encouragement, seek out stories from the global church. Past, present, seek them out. I can, I can give you some books. If you have notes right now, write down The Heavenly Man, Brother Yun. Write down uh, one I read recently called Killing Fields, Living Fields, which is the Cambodian church. If you can find it, write down Missionary Joys in Japan, 1906, Page Wilkes. Ask me, please ask me. But also Google it. We have the internet. Google the Ethiopian revival right now. Google the church in, in Iran. You know, fact check me, please. 
look up Uncle John, the traveling gypsy who preaches outside Kent and outside of an Audi. Look up these stories and preach them to your own hearts. There are many Christian books out there, and they're all wonderful, but once you get a taste of the stories of the global church, kind of books, quasi-self help books don't quite you know, do it for you. YouTube music from the Korean church or the Chinese church. Just go for it. The internet's a wonderful place. Because being part of the Christian church always has a dual calling. One calling is always to the local context, your community, your city, your neighborhood, your enemies, right there in front of you to love and to serve. But it also has a global calling to participate in and to be aware of the global movement of Jesus Christ. The day-to-day can be very discouraging and very mundane, very mundane, particularly in the season that we find ourselves in right now in Britain 2023. But take time to look among the nations. And we can take heart knowing that God is working out a global story with a global strategy. And you will find that you'll be so encouraged. We have very good reason to believe that there is nothing more worthwhile than to give ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. Give me an undivided heart, O Lord, for all the nations you have made come and worship before you. I want to end with a story from the Cambodian church, from this book, Killing Fields, Living Fields. Now, the Cambodian church is fairly young. Um, the first Protestant missionaries came in in 1920, 1920s-ish, and they had very little success for the first 50 years of the entire ministry. And in 1970, after 50 years of missions work, it was estimated that there were only about 300 Christians in the entire country. That's pretty poor work, but difficult work. They were sowing in very hard ground. Then, in 1970, a civil war broke out between the national government and this brutal, radical communist regime called the Khmer Rouge. Some of you might not have heard of it. And during the civil war, there was a spiritual awakening in the Christian church. That 300 became 3,000 within four years because people were kind of um, confronted by the collapse of their nation and they were invited to a higher call of Christ. But then in 1975, in May, the Khmer Rouge, the communist regime, captured the city, the capital city of Phnom Penh, and established one of the most terrifying regimes of the 20th century. Some of you might know this, but between 1975 and 1979, the Khmer Rouge regime systematically and brutally killed one quarter of their population under the guise of eradicating bourgeois ideas from this land. Around two million out of seven million Cambodians were killed in this four-year period. It's atrocious. And in the months preceding the Khmer Rouge rule, there was a man called Pastor Chuk, who ran one of the largest churches in the capital city. And he sent regular letters to his English missionary partners right here. And during the final days of the Civil War, he was encouraged to flee the country because you know, you to keep him safe, but he refused to go because he couldn't abandon his congregation. And as the city was being destroyed and the Khmer Rouge were advancing into the city, in April 1975, on Good Friday, one month before the city fell, 
he wrote his final letter. We have epistles from the global church to this land. He wrote his final letter, and a very short one. In it, he wrote, the Lord is with us, is he not? We praise him because we are not on the losing side. It's an outrageous thing to say. We are not on the losing side. Pastor Chirik was martyred a week later. No, a week after the regime was established, weeks later. The next four years was a time of deep darkness for this nation and for the Cambodian church, almost totally wiped out. 90% of Christians were killed. And the Khmer Rouge were utterly brutal. Yet 40 years later, there are now over 500,000 Christians in Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge regime fell within four years of being established, and Pastor Chirk was proved right. Jesus is never on the losing side. And one of the most popular refrains of the Cambodian church since the 1960s is this beautiful little refrain. It's quite on PC. It says, our gods have died and left us destitute, but Jesus is alive. Pastor Churik and the Cambodian church had an undivided heart, truly. They looked amongst the gods and found them all wanting, and found Jesus to be the only one who is the most beautiful and truly alive God. And they looked among the nations, and they saw that he was weaving a story far bigger than the national context. They took encouragement, they took faith, and God gave them an undivided heart. This is the heart of a Christian. This is the heart that David prays for and that I pray for. And I would love us to pray for this heart as well together. So should we all stand?